This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. You're listening to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Paul Muldoon, the poetry editor of the magazine, and it's a delight to have you with us today. On this program, as you know, we invite poets to choose a poem from the New Yorker archive to read and discuss. And then, of course, we ask them to read one of their own poems that's been published in the magazine, and we talk about that too. And I'm delighted to say that my guest today is Stephen Burt. Stephen Burt is the author of Nine Books of Poetry and Criticism. Welcome, Stephen Burt. Happy to be here. You pose a problem immediately because the poem you have chosen to read is Sad Verso of the Sunny. Yes. Then there's a blank, an underlined uh, space, which of course is great for the eye but not for the ear. It's a poem by Liz Waldner, and I suppose I'm, I'm really intrigued to hear how you're going to give the title of it yourself. Well, she's not, as you know, the only poet who puts blanks in poems and in titles. And uh, I like to imagine it being read aloud and the reader, perhaps the poet herself, making a sort of gesture to indicate the blank line. So I'm going to read the title and then give a longer than usual amount of quiet before going into the poem itself. Sad Verso of the Sunny Velt sounds good to me, like melt, back when you could eat Velveeta and call it cheese. My grandfather's macaroni and cheese featured a whole brick of Velveeta. I liked peeling away its beautiful silver wrapper, Velveeta, Velveeta, all over in blue. The expanses of time in which there was this grandfather appeared endless when I was in them. Who could see to the ends of the plains and so see her end beyond them? Who could think to look, you, like Ohio and its vowels, went on forever, just ate your macaroni and cheese, relishing the brown bubbles on top, then did the next thing, were the next moment surrounded and held in it by all the things you didn't know would end. Nothing seeded, no portend, only geranium and melamine and thank you, everywhere preceded by some please. So that was Sad Verso of the Sunny by Liz Waldner, which was published in the November 23rd, 2009 issue of the magazine. One of the things that struck me listening to you read it there, uh, Stephen Burt, was the um, 
attention you paid and I suppose the attention demanded by the line endings and the line endings a feature of course of all verse but somehow in the case of this poem one seems to be particularly impressed by them. Yes, I've admired Liz Waldner's sense of the poetic line, her sense of how to give the line a kind of integrity that is separate both from the pauses and rhythms of conventional unpremeditated speech and from the regularities of older verse forms. I admire her ear and her sense of vowel sounds and near rhymes very much, and I think this poem is a good example of that gift. It's also, for me, a wonderful example of three things that, as uh, to misquote T.S. Eliot, three things that aren't always found together in the same hedgerow, three things that are aspects of really all poetry that is memorable. And those three things are a kind of primitive emotional resonance, a sense that the poem speaks to our lives and to the lives of the listener and to the life of the poet, yes. uh, an emotion. And a sense of intellectual challenge, a sense that if you scrutinize the language and reread it, you'll find something about the poem as a construction and perhaps something about human life that you did not apprehend the first time around. So those three aspects, emotion and uh, delight in sound and intellectual challenge, really all pop out of the poem in a way that I would like to call Waldner-esque, but that's rare more generally. I can go through them in turn, shall I? Well, please do. I mean, sure. we might start with the title. I mean, yeah. and it turns out that the long pause there at the end of the phrase, sad verso of the sunny, is in a way completed by the first word of the poem. Welt presents itself as a possibility. Not a word we use an awful lot. It's a word used more in the African context. Welt. The title is a kind of puzzle, a kind of challenge. It asks us as readers to put it together with the very sort of American and almost TV standard childhood memory that constitutes the bulk of the poem. And... It invites us to guess at its connection, and one guess is that the sunny memory, the flat sunny memory of a flat slice of a block of cheese, is the sort of obverse or the screen before the thought of death and time and change that these childhood memories prevent, that childhood innocence, the sense that time is not yet passing for you, is the recto and the sense of life moving on, of death coming to the grandfather and uh, to the poet herself. She says her end, not his end. Uh, that's the verso. But the title also does something else, which I had to stare at it for a while before understanding, which is that it is a cryptic crossword clue. When you see the word verso in a cryptic crossword clue, it means that you should invert, turn backwards or turn around the word that would otherwise be the answer. Mm -hmm. The blank, the four-letter blank in the title, if you fill in the word plea, P-L-E-A, and you turn that word upside down, you get V-E-L-D, wow. which is an alternate spelling for velt, which is more commonly spelled V-E-L-D-T. And so the word plea becomes pluralized at the end of the poem with Please, the thing that you say before you get the mac and cheese from the grandfather. 
Right. You know, my concern as we talk about the poem in this way is that some listeners may think to themselves, my heavens, I need a a couple of advanced degrees in gymnastics, never mind anything else, to be able to read a poem like this. I don't think that's an impression that we would really want to give. And and the beauty of this poem is that if you like puzzles and wordplay, they are there for you. But if you don't seek that, then you don't have to go with any of them. It's a poem almost about how to frame a childhood memory so that the sweetness of that memory and the innocence of it is somehow recoverable now that we are adults, now that we know that we will die and that everyone will die. It is a poem about how to remember a time before you saw yourself in time. It's a poem of that time before we could have nostalgia, the time when At least we think that as children we just sit there and eat our cheese. Well, that's right. We sit there and eat our cheese, but there's something else we also do um, that occurred to me as, as you were speaking there. It's not inappropriate to think of the idea of play when it comes to words. Mm -hmm. It's almost impossible to put two words together or have two words find each other out without some little play being involved. Yes. And that, of course, is something that children particularly relish. I mean, with their Velveeta, they relish the fact that the word Velt is just sort of bleeding into or melting into Velveeta. And that's the kind of uh, physical experience that they actually enjoy having with words. Yes. And the formula, as it were, the, the recipe, the guide to at least Liz Waldner's sort of poetry, and perhaps all poetry, is that we take those facilities, those delights in wordplay that we acquire, certainly if we're lucky, in childhood, and we use them to think about, to help us live with, or at least pretend that we understand topics that are playful but that are not purely play, that can be sad, that can be unsolvable, that can be even unassuageable. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. Stephen Burt, in the August 5th, 2013 issue of The New Yorker, we published your poem, Hermit Crab, and you're going to read that for us now. But before you do, is there anything, though, that you'd like to uh, alert us to that might be helpful to listeners? Well, there are uh, two words that are somewhat unusual words that occur toward the end, and the words are adnate, 
which is an organ, especially a plant organ, connected to an organ of a different kind as when you have a, a stamen, a reproductive organ, connected to a leaf or a stem. And the other word is cancellate, which means forming a network with a lot of cross-hatching or spongy and full of holes. And so they're words for kinds of patterns that you can see that are characteristic mostly of living things. Hermit Crab by Stephen Birch. Hermit Crab. That shell is pretty, but that shell is too small for me. Each home is a hideout. Each home is a secret. Each home is a getaway under the same hot lamp, a means to a lateral move at low velocity. I live in a room in the room of a boy I barely see. Sometimes the boy and his talkative friends raise two warm hands and try to set me free. And I retreat into myself, hoping they place me back in my terrarium, and they do with disappointed alacrity. Scatter patterns in sand, adnates, cancellates, gaping whelk husks, a toy tractor trailer, cracked and dinged beside the spine of a plastic tree. The helmet-shaped shelter of a shadow cast by a not-quite-buried wedge of pottery. If I have a body that's wholly my own, then it isn't mine. For a while I was protected by what I pretended to be. That's Hermit Crabbe. Stephen Burt read there by him. I must say one of the advantages of hearing it read aloud is that I realized uh, something that perhaps I had subliminally grasped, but it really came to the fore there as, uh, as I heard it read, and that's the fact that it rhymes right the way through. We've got the me, the velocity, the sea, the free, the alacrity, the tree, the pottery, and the bee, and it's there as a beautiful toll right through the poem, sort of gives the uh, poem a very powerful structure. Thank you. I think that that sort of tolling, that, that bell sound, has some kind of emotional connection to one of the things the poem is about, which is the feeling that you're stuck with your body, but you're not. And it's as if the crab or the figure the eye of the poem, were outgrowing the various shells that were the stanzas and coming back and saying, here I am in my own body again, which is not an experience that this eye, that this persona necessarily likes. And that's partly an experience of gender. It's one of a couple of poems that I've been working on that are about uh, the experience of having two genders, as it were, being he and she at once, uh, not especially wanting to be a boy or a man uh, and uh, wishing to be otherwise. And that is certainly part of the poem. A hermit crab is a gross, yucky boy sort of pet, uh, stereotypically or traditionally. Uh, and this hermit crab does not really want to be who the hermit crab is and keeps coming back to that. It is not a coincidence that this is a boy who is playing animal games. Then, of course, the shell or the construction that is a lyric poem is a version of that alternate housing for the ego, that housing that is sometimes more ornate, uh, sometimes more artificial, uh, and sometimes much more comfortable than the physical, literal body of, of the poet can be. 
it's difficult to read this poem, uh, a poem having to do with a creature that's armoured, a creature mm -hmm. that's bristling in some way, and uh, that is defending itself, or at least defensive, yeah. without thinking of the work of a poet who excelled in that particular mode. And of course, I'm thinking of Marianne Moore. And is Marianne Moore someone with whom you, at some level, had to come to terms or maybe even engage in some sort of dialogue as you wrote this poem? Absolutely. Uh, Marianne Moore has meant more to me and I felt closer to her as I've grown up, seems like the wrong word there, but as I've continued to read and to think about her. And Moore uh, was not only about representing armor and representing defensiveness in a way that was friendly and not aggressive, but she was also about reinventing rhyme for our era. She was. You know, one of the things that strikes me about this poem is that while it deals in matters of the defences, as it were, mm -hmm. it's actually quite naked in a way that perhaps not uh, all of Marion Moore's poems are. I mean, isn't she a little tight in some ways? It depends which more one looks at. More, I think, had to be evasive because she was often attacking people. She was often critiquing people, mm -hmm. especially early in her career, a poem like To a Steamroller. The poems that one usually starts readers new to Marianne Moore with are often poems that are sort of guarded insults or repasts. That's one of the ways in which I don't feel a kinship with her. I feel that uh, if, if I construct the right sort of verse armor, uh, I can be naked underneath. And I don't know that reading through a lot of more that she very often felt that way when she was at her best. I think that's right. Thank you so much for talking with us today, Stephen Burt. Thank you. For reading Sad Verso of the Sunny by Liz Waldner. And of course, uh, your own poem, Hermit Crab. And both of those may be found on NewYorker.com. Liz Waldner's latest book of poems is Play and Stephen Burt's most recent, Belmont. And Paul Muldoon, until next time, thank you very much indeed. You can subscribe to this podcast, the New Yorker Out Loud podcast, the Fiction podcast, and the Political Scene podcast in the iTunes store. Subscribers to the magazine can hear more poetry read by the authors in the tablet and iPhone editions of the magazine, and of course online at newyorker.com and the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker is available at audible.com I'm Paul Muldoon, until next time I'm Alex Schwartz I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham and this is Critics at Large a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. I'm oh. really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I'm, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> 
We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon.